hamster with a blunt penknife would do it quicker. Welcome back to uh, Hamster with a Blunt Penknife, the Doctor Who commentary podcast. I am about to head into a dark and scary place with a wonderful man who hopefully is going to hold my hand throughout this, Mr. John Bensalia. Hello. Hello, Joey. Hi. How are you doing today? I'm very well. How are you? I'm terrified. You're terrified. Yes. I'm, I'm probably even more terrified. Um. Okay, scary Doctor Who, yeah? Yeah. Would you say the story we're about to uh, watch is the scariest Doctor Who story? I I don't know about the scariest. It is one of the scariest. So if, scary, if it had a content warning, monsters, it? It, it, it probably is one of the scariest. Um, it, it, it is one of the classics that we're going to look at today. Um considerably more scary than the Doctor of the Widow and Wardrobe, <laughs> I would wager. Uh, I'd but say I that's, that's scary in a very different way. Scary in a different way, yeah. yeah. Scarily bad. <laughs> scary against the laws of sentimentality. Yes, and against, you know, rewinding time and kids with dorky glasses. Oh, Those man. glasses are scary. They are terrifying. But this terrifying. Was, they have an entity all of its own. This was so... They, they kind of knew this story well i haven't even talked about what the story is yet but they knew this story was gonna scare kids because they put out that trailer didn't they with patrick trout they did yeah patrick trout came on set and he warned kids oh next week is going to be very scary kids you know if you're you know if your mummy and daddy are around get them to hold your hand i um i have a confession to make mm -hmm. a shocking oversight has occurred this is okay so i'm a hundred i think i've uh, put out 176 episodes of this now yeah and i've recorded about 100 more this is the second second doctor story i've recorded <gasps> oh my word oh my giddy up how has that happened how's that happened i don't know i mean it, it doesn't help but so many of his episodes are missing it, it is a problem. I mean, they've redressed the balance recently, which is good. Mm. You know, they've got the animations and stuff like that. But, you know, we're still missing Highlanders, abominable <laughs> snowmen, we in space, space pirates, probably a good thing. <laughs> yeah, must, must do better, Joey. Must do I'm better. so sorry. And do you know what? Like, <laughs> do, you know, do you know what uh, the, the Patrick Trouton story I have done is? Which one? It's the space pirates. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, oh, there you go. Well, a lack of DVD is not going to stop you well, enjoying the space or not enjoying the space. Well, one of the things is because I always put it out to the, the guests to kind of choose what they want to do. And mm. uh, I have recorded Power of the Daleks as well, but I haven't put it out. Um, right. But people just have avoided this era, and I can't think why. I can't imagine why. I mean, he's one of my favourite doctors. Mm. I mean, it's, you know, they, they don't call him the mighty trout for nothing. He's brilliant. If you ask brilliant. any um, any any it. actor that played the Doctor, a lot of them look back and say Trouton's the one. That... Trouton is the main man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I well, think... he is. Yeah. I mean, he, he kind of um, he kind of set the benchmark, didn't he? Because regeneration had never been done before. And he did it so brilliantly. And it was a huge success. And I think that's why people, you know, revere his his 
time on Doctor Who. It's a, a super interesting era as well because the first season he does, uh, first two thirds of the season that he does, is kind of finding its feet, isn't it? And they're trying things like underwater menace and things like that. And like you know, and he, he his performance is kind of bedding in. He's always good, yeah. but he's he's kind of figuring out how to play the part. Then his second series basically has a formula, doesn't it? It has like an American style formula. Siege, yeah. Basically. And then his third series, they push away from that completely and start doing like madly experimental things like the mind rubber, like 10 episode stories, you know, uh, the crazy yeah, stories. Completely crazy in that, in um, that time of season. You know, you've got an eight part invasion, yeah. uh, some monster stories, space opera, all, all kinds of things. Well, why don't you then tell everybody what we're talking about today? Because we've successfully gone five minutes without talking about the title. Okay, yeah, right, drum roll. It's a web of fear. The web of fear. Um, and I am going to very quickly ask you one question before we go in, and that is, okay. where were you or what did you do when this was first discovered? Did you wait for this to come out on DVD? Because it was pretty quick. Or I was very you... good. The problem with downloading and streaming in uh, where I live in the back of beyond is that it takes about it probably takes two hours just to watch one half hour episode okay because the internet signal is so crap it, it just is like a snail's pace and when when I watch you know try and watch streaming you know on, on general TV I just end up shouting and screaming at the TV because it, it just keeps going around in circles like that so uh, I, I was a, you know i was a good boy and i wanted to give a dvd which i have here but I, I was absolutely delighted because it is one of my top 10 favorite stories what, was I it already which like one day it would be discovered and i was delighted before it was found was it already like a, a top 10 it was story? yeah it was yeah it was wow. one of those it was just one of those stories because i love i love whodunits i love you know murder mysteries and this is this is basically a, a murder mystery with a science, a science fiction twist. So in the last commentary we did, you mentioned, yes. I, I didn't believe you, but I do believe you, don't worry, that you're not a Christmas man, right? And uh, you're not the biggest fan of Christmas. But this must no. have been all your Christmases come at once then when this one was found. It was. It was. I mean, not just that, but the fact that they found an enemy of the world as well. I mean, yeah. it's, it's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And I think I remember I went into I went into a bookshop when I was about um I think about 12 years old, and I remember buying Scene of the Sidemen and the Web of Fear. This was in the days before they were, you know, they were found again. Thinking, my God, I love these stories, but what if one day they could actually bring you know bring back the original tapes because I knew about the archive stuff? And then here you know, here we are, you know, whatever years later. And we can actually get to see them on DVD. It's it's just amazing, absolutely amazing. I still kind of pinch myself when I put when I get the DVD off the shelf. I'm just like, is this happening? Like because I know. because for I don't know what 35 years of my life these weren't available and I couldn't watch them. Yeah, you know. So I think okay, it's been five years or whatever it's been like 10 years now. Has it been they've been back? Yeah, and I'm like, yeah, 2013, wasn't it? Yeah, eight oh. years ago. And I'm like, yeah, it still hasn't bedded in yet that these actually exist. So I know. I remember what it was. The first episode was on Lost in Time, which yeah. was the orphan uh -huh. collection. And I remember re being really pissed off that I couldn't actually go from episode one to episode two. And now here we are, all uh, all six episodes loaded up. Well, not five episodes. 
Five episodes, that's uh, right. And the one that five, got five out of the six. The yeah. one that got stolen. The one that got stolen. <laughs> I don't know where. You know. No, who knows? Somebody's probably using it as a play or something. I don't know. It's especially annoying and enticing because episode one is so bloody good. So when that was the only one yeah. that existed, wow. Well, on that note, should we skip in? Yeah, I'll just get the cranky old DVD. Oh my, the great trout title sequence. The, the originals are so good. I, I, yeah, like, I really yeah. like both black and white title sequences. I prefer, I prefer this one. I don't like the fact you don't get a face in the, uh, the heart ones. And uh, straight in from Enemy of the World. Oh yeah, here we go. Is if you come anything... into it cold, you think, what the hell's going on? Well, it Why looks... are they like um, groping each other on the TARDIS floor? It's very strange. Well, have you listened to the behind the scenes stories about uh, Patrick Trout and his many wives? Uh, <laughs> don't go there no no cancelled <laughs> we're only 10 seconds in it's like <laughs> um but the direction here so the lights are, are kind of flashing on and off the, the the camera's on an angle so it feels like the tardis is very askew mm. like it's simple tricks but it works it's not going camping he's no, directing no. the hell out it could have been a really mundane kind of opening, you know, just, you know, somewhere. Close-ups of faces and going, oh, no, but he directs the hell out of it, you know, the certain camera angles and the lighting, and it, it, it is brilliant. And all the way through the story, he is just a master. Oh, and God. it's so brilliant that we can actually see, see the results of his work. Well, okay, I've got a big question for you straight off the bat, then. Shoot. Yeah. Is this, and I think there's an argument for this, is this the best directed Doctor Who story of the classic series? I think I think there's a very good case for that. I, th I think it is extremely well directed. Um, and Douglas Campion just no knows how to do it. He's got, you know, interesting camera choices, uh, which we talk about through the story. Um, he's got a good cast, great action, great eye for action, scary visuals. So, yeah, I, I think... It's a very valid, um, very valid point. I've um, I've always Straight talked about um, the language of black and white <clears throat> television, yeah, and how it is so different from the language of color television. I think he is like the expert at drawing He's atmosphere from black and white TV. Yeah, I, he... I just I couldn't imagine this colorized. No. It's you know it's too too atmospheric. Uh, unlike this guy that's coming on now, uh, he's just about to wander in. Here we go, Julie Silverstein. Oh, <laughs> go on. I know I know you're gagging to do this. Go on. Harris, it is you. I am not a fool. You cannot frighten me with your stupid tricks. <laughs> Stubborn old goat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're not subtle performances, are they? Oh, yeah, very subtle. Um, yeah, but you know what? This is pure hammer horror, isn't it? This it is pure hammer horror. It's a wonderful prologue. Everything about it is great. The lighting, yeah, the uh, performances by Silverstein, um, the music, 
the background music. It's stock, it's really isn't it? Spooky as well. That's stock music. That's not even music specifically designed. It's, it's not Dudley Simpson because I, I don't know what the story was with Hamfield and Simpson. You know, I'm not sure if they had a falling out or he just didn't. He wanted to use something different. But the, the stock music works really well. It's yeah. very, very well chosen. But it kind of it's a bit disconcerting after watching it, um, Enemy of the World, because they use the same music for the underground scenes. They do. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But do you know what I find? Like, that, oh, it's my That disagreement that he had with Dudley <clears throat> Simpson. Yeah, I don't know the truth <clears throat> behind that either. By all accounts, yeah. Dudley Simpson is a very amiable man. Um, so goodness knows what happened. But it means that all of um, Douglas Campbell directed stories have interesting music because they're so different. But like uh, Jeffrey Burden scores in Terror of the Zygons. Yeah, Terror of the Zygons and Season The, yeah, the weird ambient yeah. music in Inferno. That weird music in, in Inferno. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a lot of, you know, again, that stock, isn't it? Money! <laughs> <laughs> Take him away! Out of my house! Okay. Okay, I've got a, I've got a potentially controversial question. Then is this okay? Is this like really hideously stereotyped and a bit, you know, is this too much? Uh, yeah. Well, you, you won't be able to get away with something like that. It's, it's, it is, it is just cliche. But you know, the argument that I come to is, it is a product of its time. And unfortunately, yeah. like it or not, these were not such enlightened times as you know they are now. It's the same with um, Talent of Wing Chiang. You know that that is very much of its time. Um, I, I've, yeah, I've had this conversation yeah, quite a few times now on here, and yeah. I am absolutely somebody <clears throat> who who accepts that argument that you just said. There is that mm. it is a bit thoughtless. It, it is how yeah. things were done back then because like people weren't as aware of offending people as they are now yeah of course yeah uh, i mean yeah. I, I wonder sometimes if we've gone too far the other direction now um and everything's very i know yeah very safe, yeah you know <clears throat> it is yeah oh look at this shot of the sphere coming through the window it's great very simply done and with you know very little money and very little time the whole thing so like candles the lit, astonishing isn't it the whole well, thing the whole thing's lit with candles yeah Oh no. It is you. <laughs> I am not frightened by your stupid tricks. <laughs> um, so stereotypical, he had to die. Yeah. Stereotype gets bumped off first. But this shot of the Yeti coming to life. Yeah. And it's glowing eyes. Yeah. That's wonderful. And the music is really building up to the crescendo as well. I mean, it's like madly melodramatic, and you know that's my wheelhouse. So, <laughs> of course, yeah, but it's it's pure pure horror, isn't it? I mean, I want to get his brains bashed in. I do want to talk to you about the Yeti, but I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna save what I want to say for episode four and the action sequences okay. in Covent Garden. You got it. Um, okay, so and sandwiches. I like that... the fact that they they're kind of like Scooby Doo and Shaggy. In that they always have to break from adventures to chow down sandwiches. It's like in the invasion when they oh, yeah. they're in the middle of hunting for Zoe and Isabel, and it's like, oh right, no, never mind. Oh, he's a big plate of sandwiches. We just stop those. John, the, the I relate. Space I would be the same if it was me on these adventures. Roasty. I would always be able to stop for a sandwich, no matter what's going on. Yeah. 
And actually, in the, in the current series, or was it series 11, Graham says, oh, well, I always pack a cheese and pickle sandwich just in case. You know? <laughs> ah, well, useful, yeah. So what do you think of the Abominable Snowmen? And which do you think is the superior great intelligence story? Uh, well, well, I prefer this one. Um, be because, you know, it is one of my favourites. Having said that, I do like the Abominables. And I do like what they do with Adam Sandler. Is that how you pronounce it? I think, yeah, um, I think that's the guy playing in Wolf Morris is very, very good. He does that sort of repeat. <laughs> He actually sounds genuinely like he's being possessed. Yeah. Jack Watling does that. Well, we'll talk about that. Um, but yeah, I, I prefer this. I, I like the idea of the great intelligence as kind of a figment, cosmic face of entity. Um, but I have to say, both stories are considerably better than when they did it in, is it Snowmen? They oh. brought it back. And Richard E. Grant just sort of sleepwalks yeah. his way through it you know so, yeah. that's a shame although i do i do like uh, and it's a very moffaty thing to do i do like the fact that he gives an explanation as to why the great intelligence is here in this story right but that's about it that's about the only thing i that's think about it, successful, yeah. you know but there's no menace there's no terror well they make the abominable snowmen snowmen i know it's, very I mean, it's just literally oh just oh here we are in um ah oh, ralph watson sadly passed away yeah. a couple of days um, last month do you know the stories about ralph watson and douglas canfield no actually, oh no. my god this is hilarious he drops this in the monster of Peladon commentary right and right, Ter yeah. terence dix falls about with laughter when he hears this so douglas canfield for whatever reason yeah is you know in i think he's in the pink panther movies where Kato's yeah. hiding in the room and yeah. the fella comes in, it's like, ah, he just jumps. Yeah. So Douglas Canfield used to do this to Ralph Watson all the time. He'd be hiding in a set and then Ralph Watson would come in and he'd jump out on in a and he said it really pissed him off. Like he was like, stop scaring me. Um so is is he gonna jump out behind that great big door? So literally know, every set. That's he could be hiding anywhere in any of these sets, waiting to jump yeah. out of Ralph Watson. He's probably behind that dartboard. He'll, he'll probably just suddenly throw the dartboard out and his head will stick through Douglas Cameron. A, a, a quick moment to mention Jack Watling. And Jack Watling, yeah. just how good he is in this and how different he is from the Abominable He's Superman. excellent, yeah. He can tell us the same guy, but he, he does a very good job of playing him older. Well, I mean, you know, what very, would it very have been? Kind of six months between making the two uh yeah well probably less than that because yeah bondable snowman was made literally just a couple of weeks before transmission so we're talking about three or four months i think well i've watched he, he does he does a superb job i've watched a yeah. lot of science fiction okay and i've seen a lot of horrendous aged up makeup that yeah. is very good that is very good very subtly done but it's the performance he's hunched over and he wasn't yeah. in the Bumble snowman he's got a gravelier voice and of course because he's old he's become a mad eccentric yeah of course yeah stereotypical when you become old you know stereotypical madman. 
I love it when he's... These, just... these, these three are great. I, I could just watch these all the day. Okay. Well, okay, so I, I, I think as a, a trio, yeah, they're yeah. incredible. I, the chemistry between the three actors is amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think as a duo, uh, Jamie and the Doctor, Jamie, fantastic. Yeah. yeah I really have trouble with Victoria when she's away from the other two. She does, yeah, like in this story, she, <clears throat> there's one point she's just wandering the tunnels and just Jamie. calling out to the Doctor. You no, just think, no. right, you know. I, I, having said that, I, I think I've probably mellowed the thing in my attitude to her because you think, you know, she's she's an innocent Victorian girl. She's seen her father, you know, her father's just been killed by the Daleks. She's been taken out of the comfort zone. So, yeah, of course she'd be frightened. But, yeah, it, the downside is it can get a bit greater when she's screaming and whining. But, I find like when, yeah. when Zoe comes along, it is like a breath of fresh air because suddenly you have a very proactive very yeah i would probably prefer dr jamie and zoe trio um, and it helps that they all got along so well you know and that really comes through on on the screen they're but, really good friends and i think they, they genuinely enjoy making it yeah. which, is, which is wonderful you know what i love about these three is they're incredibly tactile with each other yeah and, and that that says a lot when when you kind of touch people quite a lot you know i feel as if they're they're a really close like family unit it's kind of yeah family yeah Oh, Troughton is so good, isn't he? Like, he's like, brilliant. For... brilliant. Oh, okay. Now I want to talk about the sets. There was me saying I was going to struggle to talk about anything. Yeah. You, you feel, well, you know, there, there's no end of things to talk about. This, but this is incredible. They, they did this at Ealing, didn't they? Mm. And they received a letter of complaint, apparently, because they thought that BBC had actually taken its cameras to a genuine London Underground station. Did you hear about uh, the letter of complaint uh, from Gallifrey? Um, I'm about to make a terrible joke about them doing Gallifrey sets and uh, they thought that was the real thing. Skip over it. It's a terrible <laughs> joke, right? But they are very authentic sets. Brilliant. I mean, where have me filmed? And, and, and it helps that they actually film it on film. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So it has that kind of like soft, soft look about it. And it sounds echoey as well. It does, they've treated the sound, haven't they? Which is great. And I love the background music to this. Very eerie. If you look at the set pictures, and there are, I think in the How Stammers and Walkers 60s book, there are pictures yeah. of just the sets. And yeah. they very cleverly designed them, a bit like the Ark in Space. So um, going around corners is just sort of there. So it feels like it stretches on forever because you can't quite see around the corner, you know? Yeah, part, part of the way they successfully pull it off is, again, down to the direction of Douglas Canfield, who, who films it very cleverly. Oh, this scene is iconic, isn't it, with the man covered in web? With the man, yeah, covered in cobwebs. Yeah, they, they chose this for the... Um, uh, the they, did, they did a documentary in, I think, 1993, more than 30 years in the TARDIS, I think. But they chose this... Douglas Campbell is very good with the close-ups. He's very good at getting Patrick Troughton's, you know, close-up of his face. There are certain directors that really trust the actors, aren't there? So they'll they'll go right in That's and trust them to yeah. just perform. Yeah. Troughton gets a scene in a later episode where he's talking about the great intelligence. 
episode. And the camera yeah. is and he's brilliant. Yeah, great big close up. Yeah. And he feels it really unusually as well because it's kind of like I'm slightly down below. So it's kind of like looking up at him and it's very, very good. But we'll, we'll talk about that. I'm going to say something incredibly um, selfish now because I think it's amazing. Yes that we have the the animations for the stories that don't exist anymore and i really appreciate that but they just can't simulate trout's performance in animation they just can't do it because he is such yeah. an interesting performer and he does all kinds of things with his face and the and you know his his uh, body language definitely and there's a lot of that in this and also in the enemy of the world yeah. when he's you know when he's kind of flirting with astrid oh yeah yeah, yeah, there's yeah. some there's some great you know close-ups you know and it's just the little kind of subtle nuances that you that you miss if they're just like telly snaps or animations but the the animations are brilliant i've got to say look at that set no, no that. other tv program would get those i don't think they wouldn't get that treatment That's... so I, I think we're very lucky to yeah you know, have oh, and I, I really like the fact they bring in different animators. So like the invasion animation, the ice warriors, the reign of terror, they all look a little bit different, don't they? They do, yeah. Yeah, but it'll be interesting to see what they do with uh, episode three of this one, because it's, the DVD's due out in a couple of weeks. As long as they don't, I, I saw um, you know, the Fury from the Deep one, where in one scene they gave Trouton like enormously long arms. He looks like Mr. Yeah, Tickle. He's, he, he's like Mr. Tickle, yeah. isn't he? You know. So. <laughs> what is that all about? Aye, aye, aye. Oh, here we go. So, hang on. It's not unit in this, is it? It's just the army. No, it's it's the army, and then the brigade. The brigadier he forms unit because as a result of this, yeah. at the moment he's just a humble colonel. And through uh, a series of um, <clears throat> mishaps, because Ralph Watson was supposed to play the Colonel, wasn't he? I think so. Yeah, I, th I think he was. Or was it? I th no, I think it was. I think it was a guy called David Langton. Oh, and for that's whatever it. Reason, that's it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then Nicholas Courtney was drafted in as kind of like a last-minute choice. I, I don't know if he had any idea then. You know, just. How his status in Doctor Who would be at that point. I think he probably just thought, oh, it's just another job. Yeah. And like, you know, stretching well beyond the TV series, like when he became um, uh, president of the Doctor Appreciation Society. And then basically, yeah. Yeah, what, during his life, the latter years, like the ambassador for the show. Great ambassador. And well, I mean, well deserved as well, given, you know. Well deserved, yeah. I mean, he's one of, you know, the iconic. The iconic figures of Doctor Who, you know, it's he's one of those top ten memorable characters from Doctor Who outside. But the the enticing thing is, I know he's not here yet, is what they do with him in this story, and how so much suspicion is thrown on him because we don't know him at this point. We don't know who he is. No, no. he he could just be, any, you know, any character. He could be a conduit for the uh, for the intelligence. Oh, Victoria. Cobwebs. Yeah. That's that's a very 60s thing. You know, like the the sneeze at the wrong moment, walking into the cobwebs, yeah. you know. Hiding in plain I'll, sight I'll, as well. I found there's a lot of hiding in plain sight in the 60s. They're, they're not very good at hide and seek. Here are boobs in the wood. 
that's that was the problem with the doctor the widow and the wardrobe there weren't enough silly voices to do because they're also okay. characters are also boring you know i um we'll talk about talking about voices uh have you ever heard fraser hines's second doctor for big finish I think I heard a clip of it, and he's, he's oh, actually very good. He does, like, the gravelly kind of, you know, when he's being very serious, like, you know, there are evils to be fought in the universe. So well. Yeah, but oh, the Tambourine's voice is, is very good. What on earth is that shaggy creature in the underground? He looks a little bit like a budgie in that shot. He's kind of got, like, a beat, you know, so he, he wants his parrot food. Budgery garf food. So, of the many based on the siege stories in uh season five is this yes. the, is this the like the, like the perfect example of it and the it, this is the quintessential claustrophobic setting isn't it? you can't get more what can be more claustrophobic than the london underground it's it's such a simple but brilliant idea and of the i, I think they do something very very clever in series season five now i don't like the repetitive nature of the stories but what they do is um condense the whole story into a single location and then they design the hell out of it and so i think the they do the production they save the money value, they do some really impressive work yes yeah, like the, the the production value of season five is really strong it is excellent and so what are those guns they're web guns on them. they um they actually kill one of the soldiers in I think it's the next episode and the impression i get is it's some sort of crow spray or something and it's absolutely the doctor who thing of something being utterly absurd but played for real so it's terrifying there's that john pertwee quote isn't it where you know you can you can see a yeti on the toilet in suiting back i think it is yeah and it, it it just encapsulates the whole kind of absurd you know but real so well i mean i probably would have i probably would have said we probably shouldn't see someone on the toilet but then when they did it in jurassic park it was very effective yeah so. absolutely oh i really like Anne travers i i think uh she's she's like our zoe, she's very good, zoe yeah. isn't she she she's like a proto-new shore isn't she and I think um, they they don't really fall. They they do a little bit of like uh, you know, well, what's a girl like you doing in a job like this? But she's yeah. Like, have we had that quote? I think. Yeah. Did we miss that? Uh, I think we did. I don't know. It's it's coming up. But yeah, it's, it's 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 quite refreshing to actually have this female companion, or sort of kind of like companion substitute, who isn't all smug and know it all, just gets on with it. You know, she's just being a you know an intelligent capable woman which is great in the same breath she is um travis's daughter so there is a yes. gentler side to her as well but so they kind of get to do that and she gets to be massively competent as well and smart yeah yeah well i'm it's, just it's a good performance as well let, i'm just comparing her to claire skinner in um, the doctor the widow and the wardrobe you know mother earth and all this like you know oh god it's so passionate. It's, it's I keep lot. thinking Douglas Campion's head is going to come out of that dark. Ah! Ah! 
and the terrific thing about this cliffhanger that's about to come <clears> up, <throat> it's so weird, isn't it? Like, I love it when Doctor Who's, because you're like, well, what's going on? The explosive goes off and the crates just sort of glow. There's no rhyme or reason to it. I think that's that's what makes a, you know, a good cliffhanger, is where you don't know what the hell is going on. Well, I can only imagine the kids at the time being absolutely terrified by a lot of this. That, that, that is one of the reasons. I think my favourite Doctor Who stories are the ones that are genuinely scary. Either that or, you know, more, not afraid to be kind of more violent. Like, you know, Kate's famous, I know, Genesis, all of that. With the odd because, diversion for the comedy of City of Death, of course. City of Death, yeah. But even, you know, when I saw that as a kid, it was still, you know, there's still some scary bits in there. You know, probably not so adult, but. Okay, so Anne Travers is a strong, capable woman, but she's still wearing a short skirt, and that camera was almost going up it then. Yeah, basic instinct moment. <laughs> Look at that. And this. they play the, orig the original music so I don't know why. And don't you they love don't know that kind of a, the sort of jangly bits that they put on for the uh, for the faceless ones. Was um was this the norm at the time? I don't remember uh, where they play the credits over the last few shots. Is yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah. They normally face black, but they don't usually have that the weird pattern. Okay, so. Uh, heading out of episode one, I have a new question for you. Obviously, I always have questions. This is like your Doctor Who mastermind. Um, in episode one stakes, where where would you rank this? Like, is this one of the best ones? One of the best ones? I think I think it's got everything. You need a mystery. You need horror. You need humour. You need good visuals, good actors, and I think episode one has got a lot. I say, you know, uh, with an episode one, you've got to set the scene well. Like, you've got to create your setting yeah. well. Well, hello. Um, you need interesting characters. Travers, Chorley, you know, Anne, mm. um, the Doctor Jamie Victoria. Um, it should be, yeah, you're right. There should be a big mystery. And like, Yeti's in the underground. What the hell is that about? Yeah, big mystery. It's a, it's a very good setting the scene for what's to come. Setting the stage with episode one. Well, and I, I think it does all of that. I think um, I, f I have a feeling the Doctor's <clears throat> involvement in the next episode is going to be enormous. So let's skip into episode two. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> 